in addition to hearing everything else that's going on in the in this summer and this fall. Uh, back, back to chapter 11 in Zechariah. Uh, this is admittedly uh, one of those chapters in the prophets that kind of is, is, is where the prophets, the minor prophets in particular, get that reputation for being a little bit um, not, not as cuddly-feely as other parts of the Bible, right? Um, if, you, if you've ever hugged a porcupine, it, it feels a lot like reading chapter 11 of Zechariah. Uh, in addition, it, it can be a little bit obscure. Um, there are some references in the Old Testament in particular that, you know, if we're, if we're honest, we're going we're gonna to shrug our shoulders a little bit and the commentators are going to say, we're not exactly sure what's going on here. For instance, you're going to hear in verse 8, uh, Zechariah say, in one month, I destroyed the three shepherds. Who are the three shepherds? Uh, listen to Joyce Baldwin, one of uh, the commentators I've appreciated through this series. She writes that these words are probably the most enigmatic in the whole Old Testament. So congratulations, we're now in a passage that includes maybe some of the most enigmatic words in the whole Old Testament. The shepherds have been identified in at least 40 different ways. 40 different ways among all the scholars and all the commentators and pastors and so on. Um, and so listen, I, I'm not going to pretend our, that we're going to you know, spend the next 35, 40 minutes like talking about all the different theories of all these, you know, the 40 different theories of who the shepherds are. So we're not going to go into all the details, but I do think we can really benefit from bringing the big picture in front of us uh, and, and having a look at God's heart, uh, some honesty from God on behalf of, of his uh, people who have rejected him. Uh, so let's turn to uh, Zechariah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Let's stand in honor of God's word. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them, slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep, of, by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And those who are left devour the flesh of one another. Let me pray for us. 
Father, these are, are um, challenging words to hear. Uh, and Lord, we pray that you would give us your spirit. We, we need you to pour out your spirit indeed generously so that we can take these words to heart. Uh, not run from them, not ignore them, not, uh, not, not detest them. Instead, uh, may we grow from them. May we see more of Jesus because of them, we ask in his name. Amen. Please, please be seated. So, I think, you know, when you come across uh, words like, I will no longer be their shepherd, uh, that, that's a very arresting statement that gets your attention. Um, it's, it's troublesome. Uh, we, we're not used to hearing words like that. We are much more comfortable with words that promise us uh, God's affection, His favor, etc. Um, and so, there are some scary words in the Bible. Uh, if it was up to us, you know, maybe we would prefer to skip over these kinds of statements. We would skip over these kinds of passages and move on to the, the more affirming uh, statements of the Bible, but we're not going to do that. Uh, we have to come to grips with every word that's in the Bible, uh, especially what some people have, uh, have called the hard sayings of Jesus. Like, uh, can you imagine overhearing Jesus say to someone, depart from me, I never knew you. Uh, or can you imagine Jesus saying to somebody, um, you need to change because if you don't, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Um, both, both are statements attributed to Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, so if we're going to be wise, if we're going to fear the Lord properly, we have to take some of these hard sayings to heart, to learn from them, to grow from them, and to see how should I live as a disciple in light of these truths? How should we as the church, who have been given God's favor, how should we receive these kinds of, of statements? So uh, let's begin in uh, the first three verses. Uh, and, and all of this is really under this whole theme of God's warning uh, to uh, the people who have are seemingly in a pattern of, of rejecting God, God says, I will not be your shepherd. Uh, the opening verses begin by these geographical references. Verse 1 talks about Lebanon. Um, Lebanon is to the north of Israel. It's mountainous, lots and lots of forests. Lebanon was famous for its cedars and for its cypress trees. In fact, Solomon's temple uh, was Part of its glory was that it, its beams were um, hewn from the cedars of Lebanon. And, uh, and so those beautiful, uh, gorgeous, you know, think of the redwood forests and how people make pilgrimage to there. You know, people would go to these forests of Lebanon. Uh, and here is this threat that fire is going to devour those cedars. And then you get to verse 2. And, uh, and you're moving from Lebanon in the north to Bashan. Bashan is this geographical area to the east of the Sea of Galilee. So it's still north of Jerusalem, but it's southeast of Lebanon. And here the oaks of Bashan are in jeopardy because the thick forest has been felled, right? So it's this picture of destruction and judgment over Bashan. And then you get to verse 3, and the sound of the roar of the lions for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. The Transjordan area along the banks of the Jordan is further south. There's this progression 
geographically moving from Lebanon in the north uh, to Bashan, a little bit south of Lebanon, to, to south still along the banks of the um, Jordan, which is much, much closer to Jerusalem. And we're really getting this picture of how judgment is moving further and further south, getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. Why? That's the question you should be asking after verse 3. Why? I thought Jerusalem had God's favor. All along, Zechariah, uh, so far we've enjoyed this prophet. I mean, it's really been fruitful, I think, for all of us to, to hear these promises. All the way back in chapter 1, you know, you had this, this statement uh, that the angel of the Lord is questioning, Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? So the pattern of a lot of the, the, the relationship between God and His people is God's people kind of wander off like a disobedient child. And uh, the father comes and he disciplines the child, gets the child's attention. The, father, uh, the children say, oh, yeah, we messed up. And then they come back into the embrace. And, uh, and that's this pattern. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And the angel who talked with me said, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. God had basically granted Israel its wish. They wanted to live like their neighboring nations. They wanted to adopt their customs and their idols and their sinful relations and so on. Uh, and God said, all right, I'm going to you know, leave you to your own desires. And those nations actually took advantage of Israel and they took them into captivity. Uh, and they went further than the Lord intended by way of God's judgment. They were abusive, right? Uh, and God says, I'm angry at those nations. I was angry but a little, but they furthered the disaster. And then God promises, look, they've returned to, uh, I've returned to Jerusalem with mercy, and my house shall be built in it. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. It's been the tone all throughout Zechariah. And now you get to verse, uh, chapter 11, and you're going, what's going on? Why, why now this, why has this cloud come over and, and this shadow um, obscured God's comfort and God's mercy? Why is this warning coming to Israel again? Um, in verse 4, uh, we're, we're continuing to ask, ask the question, why? The Lord says, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. So God's speaking to Zechariah. He's saying, I want you to lead this people. I want you to become their shepherd. Those who buy them, slaughter them, and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I've become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. So not only have the sheep wandered off, but the shepherds who were supposed to be watching the sheep, you know, they, they've become corrupt as well. And Zechariah you know, agrees to become this leader for Israel, even though they are doomed uh, to slaughter. Uh, we referenced verse 8, you know, before we got started, uh, Zechariah really takes that challenge, uh, that, that um, calling seriously. He removes these three bad shepherds, whoever they are. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's sort of this uh, exercise in futility uh, because this flock is, uh, is under judgment. What's interesting is uh, I didn't see this until a commentator pointed it out in verse 5. 
the them, those who buy them, um, slaughter them and go unpunished. You know, all right, let's be candid. Some sheep are being raised uh, for slaughter, right? They're for meat. Other sheep are being raised for breeding. Guess which sheep are raised for breeding? The female sheep, the ewes, and, um, and these are female. Uh, they're not designed for slaughter. This is a flock of female sheep because that um, pronoun is feminine. Uh, so you kind of go, all right, this is obviously an abuse of this flock, and this is not what God intended for them. Um, and those who are, uh, who, who are supposed to be responsible for them, supposed to be caring for them and blessing them, are taking advantage of them. They're selling them for gain. They're being led to slaughter. Uh, and they're boasting about it. You can hear the sarcasm. You can hear the irony uh, here in verse 5. Uh, Blessed be the Lord, you know, I've become rich, and so on. There's, uh, you know, this, this thinking that if you're rich, that must be a sign of God's blessing. If you've been prosperous, God must be, must be favoring you. And that's not always the case, especially if your gains are coming illicitly. Um, you know, for instance... We've been, uh, we've been in the market for a used car. Um, Michael's going to be spending the fall down in Orlando, and, um, and previously he's been driving my Volvo. If any of you are familiar with my Volvo, you know it is a piece of, you know, you fill in the blank. Uh, there's like 24 things wrong with it, um, but it gets me from point A to point B, and, and I'm just, I'm, I just am sort of nostalgic about it, so I keep it around. But it's not good for long distances. I don't feel good about sending Michael to, to Orlando, of all places, in the Volvo. So we've been looking for a used car for him, and we've been on Craigslist. And, and this has been an adventure, uh, because what happened on Thursday was a, a learning experience uh, for us, for our family. Uh, we found a, a Mazda 3 down in Richmond, and it looked great, you know, um, Low miles, you know, decent price. Uh, we, we ran the VIN on Carfax, looked like it had been maintained and so on. So we contacted the owner and uh, we took it for a test drive. You know, he's in the car with us and we're driving around. It's got good acceleration, good brakes, you know, nothing dripping underneath it or whatever. Looked like a great car. And there's just, I'm, I'm talking to him, like, how did you get the car? And what, tell me the backstory and why are you selling it? And and it's just things weren't adding up. Just things weren't making sense. So we got, we, we, we got back, and on Friday, I ran the VIN again, not on Carfax this time, but on a government site. I can't remember what the site is. And, I, and it came up, you know, that when, when the typeface is red, that's a clue. Uh, and it said, um, uh, the, the, the VIN came up that, it was declared a total loss because of theft. So here I am in downtown Richmond with my son in the back seat, with some stranger in the passenger seat, I'm driving around in a stolen Mazda 3. <laughs> and to be, you know, I don't mean to read motive. I don't know what this guy knows, what he didn't know. The guy who's, who's selling it to us, uh, he might have bought it as a stolen vehicle himself and not known about it. I, I just have no idea. But he couldn't tell me much about where he got the vehicle from. So I don't know. Maybe he was trying to pass it off. Uh, all that to say, we, we called the police. Um, they said the Richmond police would be back in touch with me. Uh, Incidentally, I haven't heard back from the Richmond police, so it's not that big a deal for them, apparently, but it was a really kind of crazy thing. So all that to say, 
Owning a Mazda 3 is not a sign of God's blessing. <laughs> um, getting rich on whatever it is you're doing is not a sign of, of God's blessing, especially if what we're doing is against God's purposes and against His design. He really has created this world uh, to, to flow in a way that brings Him glory. Uh, it's, it's designed for per- certain purposes and certain intentions, and when we, we, we go against those uh, that means the world is not the way it's supposed to be. That's what brings pain and brokenness and sin in, into this world. Um, when you look at verses 4 and following, um, J- Joyce Baldwin raised this question, did Jesus meditate on this passage as he considered his mission? Looking at the leaders who were corrupt, looking at the sheep who were going astray and de- you know, determined almost to just go 180 degrees the other direction like my dog sometimes. Um, Did Jesus think about this passage as he was contemplating his mission? We read in Luke 19 that when he drew near to Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. But the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know that you were a flock doomed for slaughter. And again, we're back at the same place we were after verse 3. Why? Why? Pick up in verse 7. So, Zechariah is speaking first person, I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, and in one month I destroyed the three shepherds, and I became impatient with them, with the flock, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die? Let it die and so on. And so now you get an, an, uh, we get a glimpse into why. Because God had established his shepherd. God had established his representative in Zechariah. And the sheep detested him. Uh, the the, the f- false shepherds detested him. Uh, this is why Zechariah is impatient with them. And they have rejected God's representative. And in doing that, they reject God, right? So we see now why God says, I will not be your shepherd. Humanity, we, we just have this habit, this default mode of choosing the kingdom of self instead of the kingdom of God. We want what we want. We don't want what God wants for us. Um, listen to John chapter 1. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, right? Sounds like Zechariah. That could have come right out of chapter 11. But instead, that's John chapter 1. And it's not speaking about Zechariah as the shepherd. It's speaking about Jesus as the shepherd. And he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They did not listen to him. They did not follow him. They did not believe in him. Instead, what did they do? They detested him. They rejected him. And in the end, they crucified him. 
That's what they did to the good shepherd. God, God is good. And because he's good, he doesn't lie to us. Because he's good, he's honest. And he tells us the truth about himself, and he tells us the truth about ourselves. And, and that's, that's the gift that God is giving to us in Zechariah chapter 11, and in John chapter 1, and in Luke 19, where you come across these difficult statements, and we go, I don't like that. It doesn't sound affirming to me. And instead, it's God saying, look, I'm not going to pretend like everything's okay. We have a problem here. And the problem is our choosing the kingdom of self instead of the kingdom of God. The problem is us choosing independence instead of dependence. The problem is us choosing autonomy over following. And yet into that problem comes the good shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd, what does he do? He lays down his life for the sheep. And so there's hope. There's hope in the midst of this Even the statement of the prophets, I will no longer be their shepherd, you know, this is not a permanent judgment yet. There's still time. This is this in-between time, the now and the not yet, where Jesus comes and he preaches this grace to us and he says, look, come to me. I will give you amnesty and I will lay down my life for you as as the good shepherd would do. There's this you know, kind of tragic irony in these passages like Zechariah 11. Of course, God is opposed to Israel's enemies, to Egypt, to Assyria, to Babylon, to Persia. You know, yeah, we get that. But, you know, when God promises that he who touches you touches the apple of my eye, what do we do when the apple of his eye starts to rebel against him? Right? Now we're hearing about opposition to God, not coming from out there, but from, you know, within. Even from his own sheep. Even from his own shepherds. So the gospel tells us the good news that the good shepherd came in order to become our substitute. To be rejected in our place. Um, Don McLeod says that every moment in that journey from Bethlehem to Calvary was chosen. And every moment on the cross from the third hour to the ninth hour was chosen. Jesus loved his own. And when eventually it became clear that what that love would cost, he still went forward trembling to be what his people's sin deserved. What our sin deserved. Sin is... is as one author has put it, is fundamentally antisocial, and it, it hews relationships in two. You know that interpersonally, but it's true religiously too. Our relationship with God is broken by sin. And Jesus came to be what our sin deserved. He was separated from God. So, um, in other words, the scariest words in all of the Bible were never spoken to us. These words are scary. I will no longer be your shepherd. I don't want to hear God say that. I don't want to hear depart from me. I never knew you. I don't want to hear I'm about to spit you out of of my mouth. But the scariest words in all of the Bible were never spoken to us. They were uttered to Jesus. They were only heard by him. We actually don't know exactly what those words are, but you and I can deduce very clearly the nature of that statement. 
They were heard by Jesus as he hung on the cross, and his response makes it clear to us what he heard, because we hear in Mark 15, when the sixth hour had come, so that's noon uh, in our time frame, uh, when noon had come, there was darkness over the whole land until three o'clock. And at the ninth hour, uh, at three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would Jesus cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Unless he heard in his spirit, I will no longer be your God. I will no longer be your shepherd. I will no longer be your father. That's what Jesus was responding to. So the atonement goes like this. Atonement is a $5 theological word that actually means literally at one meant. Here's how God brings us back into relationship with him. So we were created to be in perfect relationship with him. There was a covenant, a, a beautiful bond that God had established with us where he says, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, you're going to be the sheep of my pasture, right? Psalm 100. But because uh, we rejected God, our shepherd, we chose our own direction, we chose kingdom of self. And God says, look, you're going to go your own way. And he pronounces that sentence on us. He rejects us after we had rejected him. That's what the whole being kicked out of the Garden of Eden is all about, right? But God doesn't leave it there. He's always had a plan to call his people back. He sent Jesus ultimately after a long succession of prophets and kings and priests and so on to be our good shepherd, to gather the flock again. But what happened? You know, we rejected even the good shepherd and crucified him. And God's grace was greater than our sin. He actually knew that what we were going to do was reject his son. And, and he wove into the whole process of how our sins would be forgiven in the atonement. He wove that factor into the whole nature of what Jesus was accomplishing on the cross. Because Jesus became our substitute. Jesus was rejected instead of us. Even though we rejected the good shepherd... Jesus got rejected instead of us. And the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. So we get what he deserved, which is God's favor and acceptance, and he got what we deserved. So when you think about Jesus as our substitute, know that he was sinless, but got treated as a sinner. We who are sinners get treated like the sinless one. And the, and the beauty about Jesus is that because he was sinless, you know, his grace, his love, his holiness was greater than our sin, which means that death couldn't hold on to him. And that's why he rose from the grave, because it was paid in full. Our sins were taken away. Jesus is greater than our sin. He's greater than death. And so he rose victorious to be accepted back into God's presence again, which means all of us who believe in Jesus can be accepted into God's presence along with Jesus. Uh, back, back to the Mazda 3. Um, we are out, you know, I'm on, I'm downtown Richmond, we're, we're Michael and I are, are with this, uh, the guy who's selling the car, uh, on 64 through downtown Richmond on some back streets, you know, 4th Avenue and so on, uh, getting back to his house. Now, imagine if, uh, 
Imagine for just a second with me that the blue lights start flashing in the rearview mirror. And I get pulled over driving a stolen car. And I go to jail. And then one of you decides, oh, that's too bad for Essen. What a, what a, what a nice guy. He's my pastor. I just I want to do something nice for a nice guy. Um, I know. I'll, I'll go to jail for Essen, and then he can go free, and that'll make Kathy and the kids happy and so on. And, you know, I've got a free weekend. I can go to jail, you know? That would be awfully nice of you to do that for me. And I'm thankful that I didn't see blue flashing lights. Um, and so we tend to think the gospel that way. Uh, we tend to think that we're, we're nice people that, that Jesus did something nice for to kind of give us a get-out-of-jail-free card as if eternal life is a monopoly game. But it's not like that. It's more like this. It's more like, all right, I get arrested for driving the stolen Mazda 3, and then I rot in jail for a long time because I decide, you know what? I'm going to take the penalty for the guy that actually did steal the car. Spiritually speaking, we're all car thieves. When when the Johnsons um, and the Irishes took their membership vows, that first question is pretty sobering. Like, do you believe, like how, look at your bulletin, do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure without hope, save in His sovereign mercy? It's not asking, do you acknowledge yourselves to be nice people in the sight of God, justly deserving His acceptance, and without hope, save in your niceness? Like We've got to reckon with the fact that, yeah, we really do choose our own way. We really do break God's law. I am a lawbreaker, and I need Jesus to bring me back into a relationship with a holy God. And he does that as my good shepherd. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's the, uh, some of the most beautiful words in all the Bible. I know most of you are familiar with them. Even if you're not, you know, uh, if, if, you, if the church or the Bible is kind of new for you, I think everybody's heard John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And John 3.18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God because you've rejected the Savior. You've rejected the shepherd, just like Zechariah 11. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So we get this. If you're in the church, you understand this. Yeah, I believed in Jesus, and so I'm not condemned, right? Absolutely. Amen to that. And on the other hand, no. No. Not if you say you believe in Jesus but still love darkness. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So if you say you believe in Jesus but do not love him or love what he loves, you're kidding yourself. It's just words. Now, believing is what, yes, justifies us. Believing is what, yes, gets us in on the, the benefits that Jesus accomplished for us, but 
Faith that is alone and remains alone is dead faith. It always has fruit. It always loves what Jesus loves. It always embraces the light. Not consistently, I get it. We stumble, we fall, we repent, and we come back, and we do this cycle of belief and, and repentance and belief and repentance. But fundamentally, there is a desire, an orientation, a, a longing to be more and more like Jesus and to follow him. To, fr- to paraphrase um, you know, Kyle uh, Edelman's book, the Not a Fan, he says, look, it doesn't do you any good to say you believe in Jesus and to be a fan of Jesus and to appreciate Jesus and to admire him if you're not following him. Jesus doesn't need fans. He needs followers. And so that's what we're doing. So the point of Zechariah 11 is that we must not reject God or he's going to, at the end of the day, you know, when, when that day comes, the day, capital D, uh, he will reject us if we continue to reject him. But in the meantime, he's always welcoming us back into his presence. Come, come, come into my presence. And he's always bidding us to stop pursuing the kingdom of self and look to the kingdom of God. So that's it for Zechariah 11, 1 through 9. I mean, I don't feel like I can take any, we would just be hypothesizing about some of the details, but I do think there's one point of application, one final word that, that would make sense where we bring, the old, we bring the New Testament in to speak to the Old Testament, just like we need to bring the Old Testament in to speak to the New Testament. And I want to do this by way of the parable from last week. The, the prodigal sons, uh, two sons, right? The younger son and the older son. We talked about the younger son last week who went off and squandered the inheritance and repented and came back and his father embraces him and it's grace and it's beautiful and there's a party And then you hear about the older son who was out in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant because he had no idea his younger brother had come back. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf and because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. He was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. You can hear his self-righteous indignation, right? And the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What's the point of Jesus' parable? The point is that the father wants the older brother to come in from the field and join the party. That's the point. Come in. Come in and, and, and celebrate with us. Come in and accept your younger brother. Come in and accept those whom the Father welcomes home. Come in and live out this story of grace and forgiveness. This is a package deal. A package deal from the Father. The older son was 
you know, obviously had been in a relationship with his father, had been working with him, was happy to be home. He wasn't like his, you know, profligate younger brother rejecting his father and heading off into the wild country and so on. He was the good son, rule-abiding, law-keeping, dutiful, etc., and enjoys being with his dad as long as, you know, it's a fair relationship. And if he was going to have the father, then the father made it very, very clear to the, the older brother that if you're going to have me, you've got to have your younger brother too. It's a package deal. And if you're going to reject your younger brother, then that means you're rejecting me too. What's it going to be? Are you going to come in or are you going to stay out in the field? Jesus is echoing 1 John 4. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if we say we believe in God, good. It means you've accepted him. You've accepted the good shepherd, not detested him. But the fruit of that, the evidence that that's true in your heart is that you will not reject your brother or your sister. You will accept them as well. We need to be open to those who have rejected us and hurt us. We need to be willing to receive them if they return in repentance. Like I get it. There are certain situations where there's been abuse, neglect, you know, real harm. And, and there needs to be some evidence of, of, uh, of restoration and change before you, you know, allow all the, the, the safety mechanisms to, to be put away. Don't get bogged down with all of the contingencies. We're just talking principially here. Don't reject those whom God has accepted. If your father welcomes those who return to repentance, we need to welcome them too. And we can't kid ourselves. We can't have the father while we reject our brothers or our sisters. We can't, <laughs> can't reject our brothers and our sisters and think that we're not rejecting God too. So how does the parable end? It doesn't. Jesus deliberately leaves the prodigal son parable incomplete. We don't know what the older brother did. We don't know if he went inside or if he stayed out in the field sulking in his self-righteousness. Feeling like a nice guy. My brother, he's not nice. Why are we being nice to him? <laughs> because he's not nice. Instead of seeing himself as a recipient of his father's grace and wanting to bestow that same grace to his brother. We don't know what he did. And the reason why Jesus doesn't tell us the rest of the story is because you and I each tell that story in our own unique way. And we're telling the world that story. How does it end? Is it tell, do, are we going in? Are we going to live this life of grace where we're going to say, yeah, I love God and we have to love each other. Even when we hurt each other. Even when we wound each other. Some of you are experiencing a lot of pain right now from that. Do you know the number one thing that um, Jesus feels for people when, when we read about him in the Gospels? The number one way that he relates to people, it's not that he loves them. We think it's love. It's not that he's sad, even though there was a lot of tears, a lot of brokenness that he encountered. It's, it's, it's not joy. Uh, it's, it's not even just, you know, you, you, come, you fill in the blank. It's a specific emotion that he feels. Over and over and over again, the Gospel writers tell us that Jesus had compassion for these people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he loved them. And if we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to follow Jesus, we need to learn compassion for each other. Especially for those who are 
kind of going off the rails and maybe they're flailing about and we're, we're getting hurt in the process. Yeah, you talk through that, but we don't reject them. We show compassion because that's what God did to us. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for your love for us, that you would not give up on us, but that you would even send your son as the good shepherd to be rejected in our place, uh, to take our sin on himself so that we might get your favor and be at one with you again. Thank you for the gospel, and we thank you for its implications for how you bring healing to broken relationships, and you bring healing to a broken world as your people live out and, and tell the story of your grace to one another. As we forgive each other, as we welcome one another in repentance and in grace, and as we bring healing uh, as we go. So Lord, would you continue to give us uh, an understanding of what's been done for us so that we might do the same for others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.